Section 41 of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karen Savage. Section 41. Great Writers by Little Men. Pall Mall Gazette, March 28, 1887. In an introductory note prefixed to the initial volume of Great Writers, a series of literary monographs now being issued by Mr. Walter Scott, the publisher himself comes forward, in the kindest manner possible, to give his authors the requisite puff preliminary, and ventures to express the modest opinion that such original and valuable works have never before been produced in any part of the world at a price so low as a shilling a volume. Far be it from us to make any heartless allusion to the fact that Shakespeare's sonnets were brought out at fivepence, or that for fourpence halfpenny one could have bought a marshal in ancient Rome. Every man, a cynical American tells us, has the right to beat a drum before his booth. Still, we must acknowledge that Mr. Walter Scott would have been much better employed in correcting some of the more obvious errors that appear in his series. When, for instance, we come across such a phrase as the brotherly liberality of the brothers Wedgwood, the awkwardness of the expression is hardly atoned for by the fact that the name of the great Potter is misspelt. Longfellow is so essentially poor in rhymes that it is unfair to rob him even of one, and the misquotation on page seventy-seven is absolutely unkind. The joke Coleridge himself made upon the subject should have been sufficient to remind any one that Comerbach, sick, was not the name under which he enlisted, and no real beauty is added to the first line of his pathetic work without hope, by printing Lair, L-A-R-E, sick, instead of Lair, L-A-I-R. The truth is that all premature panegyrics bring their own punishment upon themselves, and in the present case, though the series has only just entered upon existence, already a great deal of the work done is careless, disappointing, unequal, and tedious. Mr. Eric Robertson's Longfellow is a most depressing book. No one survives being overestimated, nor is there any surer way of destroying an author's reputation than to glorify him without judgment, and to praise him without tact. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was one of the first true men of letters America produced, and as such deserves a high place in any history of American civilization. To a land out of breath and its greed for gain, he showed the example of a life devoted entirely to the study of literature. His lectures, though not by any means brilliant, were still productive of much good. He had a most charming and gracious personality, and he wrote some pretty poems. But his poems are not of the kind that call for intellectual analysis, or for elaborate description, or, indeed, for any serious discussion at all. They are as unsuited for panegyric as they are unworthy of censure, and it is difficult to help smiling when Mr. Robertson gravely tells us that few modern poets have given utterance to a faith so comprehensive as that expressed in the Psalm of Life, or that Evangeline should confer on Longfellow the title of Golden-Mouthed, and that the style of metre adopted carries the ear back to times in the world's history when grand simplicities were sung. Surely Mr. Robertson does not believe that there is any connection at all between Longfellow's unrhymed dactylics and the hexameter of Greece and Rome, or that any one reading Evangeline would be reminded of Homer's or Virgil's line? Where also lies the advantage of confusing popularity with poetic power? Though the psalm of life be shouted from Maine to California, that would not make it true poetry. Why call upon us to admire a bad misquotation for the midnight mass for the dying year, and why talk of Longfellow's hundreds of imitators? Longfellow has no imitators, for of echoes themselves there are no echoes, and it is only style that makes a school. 
Now and then, however, Mr. Robertson considers it necessary to assume a critical attitude. He tells us, for instance, that whether or not Longfellow was a genius of the first order, it must be admitted that he loved social pleasures, and was a good eater and judge of wines, admiring Bass's ale more than anything else he had seen in England. The remarks on Excelsior are even still more amazing. Excelsior, says Mr. Robertson, is not a ballad, because a ballad deals either with real or with supernatural people, and the hero of the poem cannot be brought under either category. For, were he of human flesh, his madcap notion of scaling a mountain with the purpose of getting to the sky would be simply drivelling lunacy, to say nothing of the fact that the peak in question is much frequented by tourists, while, on the other hand, it would be absurd to suppose him a spirit, for no spirit would be so silly as climb a snowy mountain for nothing. It is really painful to have to read such preposterous nonsense, and if Mr. Walter Scott imagines that work of this kind is original and valuable, he has much to learn. Nor are Mr. Robertson's criticisms upon other poets at all more felicitous. The casual allusion to Herrick's confectionaries of verse is, of course, quite explicable, coming as it does from an editor who excluded Herrick from an anthology of the child poems of our literature, in favour of Mr. Ashby Sterry and Mr. William Sharp. But when Mr. Robertson tells us that Poe's loftiest flights of imagination in verse rise into no more imperial realm than the fantastic, we can only recommend him to read as soon as possible the marvellous lines to Helen, a poem as beautiful as a Greek gem and as musical as Apollo's lute. The remarks, too, on Poe's critical estimate of his own work show that Mr. Robertson has never really studied the poet on whom he pronounces such glib and shallow judgments, and exemplify very clearly the fact that even dogmatism is no excuse for ignorance. After reading Mr. Hall Caine's Coleridge, we are irresistibly reminded of what Wordsworth once said about a bust that had been done of himself. After contemplating it for some time, he remarked, "'It is not a bad Wordsworth, but it is not the real Wordsworth. It is not Wordsworth the poet, it is the sort of Wordsworth who might be Chancellor of the Exchequer.' Mr. Caine's Coleridge is certainly not the sort of Coleridge who might have been Chancellor of the Exchequer, for the author of Christabel was not by any means remarkable as a financier. But, for all that, it is not the real Coleridge, it is not Coleridge the poet. The incidents of the life are duly recounted, the gunpowder plot at Cambridge, the egg-hot and Oronoku at the little tavern in Newgate Street, the blue coat and the white waistcoat, that so amazed the worthy Unitarians, and the terrible smoking experiment at Birmingham, are all carefully chronicled, as no doubt they should be in every popular biography. But of the spiritual progress of the man's soul we hear absolutely nothing. Never for one single instant are we brought near to Coleridge. The magic of that wonderful personality is hidden from us by a cloud of mean details, an unholy jungle of facts, and the critical history promised to us by Mr. Walter Scott in his unfortunate preface is conspicuous only by its absence. Carlyle once proposed in jest to write a life of Michelangelo without making any reference to his art, and Mr. Kane has shown that such a project is perfectly feasible. He has written the life of a great peripatetic philosopher, and chronicled only the peripatetics. He has tried to tell us about a poet, and his book might be the biography of the famous tallow-chandler who would not appreciate the watchman. The real events of Coleridge's life are not his gig excursions and his walking tours. They are his thoughts, dreams, and passions, his moments of creative impulse, their source and secret, his moods of imaginative joy, their marvel and their meaning, and not his moods merely, but the music and the melancholy that they brought him. The lyric loveliness of his voice when he sang, the sterile sorrow of the years when he was silent. 
It is said that every man's life is a soul's tragedy. Coleridge's certainly was so, and though we may not be able to pluck out the heart of his mystery, still let us recognise that mystery is there, and that the goings out and comings in of a man, his places of sojourn and his roads of travel, are but idle things to chronicle, if that which is the man be left unrecorded. So mediocre is Mr. Kane's book, that even accuracy could not make it better. On the whole, then, Mr. Walter Scott cannot be congratulated on the success of his venture so far. The one really admirable feature of the series is the bibliography that is appended to each volume. These bibliographies are compiled by Mr. Anderson of the British Museum, and are so valuable to the student, as well as interesting in themselves, that it is much to be regretted that they should be accompanied by such tedious letterpress. First End Note Life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow by Eric S. Robertson Second End Note Life of Samuel Taylor Coleridge by Hall Caine Great Writers Series Walter Scott End of section 41 Great Writers by Little Men